0: Welcome to the Tenacious Heart Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Cox. Here, I encourage, support, and coach on all things mental health. Whether it's anxiety, depression, ADHD, or managing your emotions, I've got you. I'll be your life coach, helping you build a life full of success, joy, and tenacity, one episode at a time. Hello. Hello. Hello, my tenacious hearts. Welcome to the pilot episode, guys. Episode one of the tenacious heart podcast. I can't believe it. So much work has gone into all of this, but I am just so grateful. I guess that's what I'm feeling is an overall sense of gratitude. Thank you for being here. Thank you for putting me in your ears, your car, your phone, wherever you are today. I'm so grateful and so honored to be the one keeping you company today. There were a lot of things going into creating this podcast, and I figured probably the best place to start would be getting to know me a little bit, getting to know... Your host, Taylor. And I think that's what we're going to do today. (laughs) We're going to do a little get to know your host today and hopefully moving forward, get to the coaching, get to what you came for, which is mental health coaching, how to live your life worth living, how to get through the day today. So let's get started on getting to know me a little bit. So my name is Taylor Cox. I am 34 years old. I am from Southern Utah. I wasn't born in Southern Utah, but that's all I've ever known. It is currently 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And for all of our Celsius friends, that's 41 degrees Celsius. Guys, it's so hot. And that's how it goes in Southern Utah. One thing you'll need to know about me is that I have been married for close to nine years to the love of my life. I know everybody says this. I get it. Everybody's like, oh, I'm married to my best friend. I'm married to the love of my life. He's the yin to my yang. But it's so true. I married my person and I am so incredibly grateful because there is no way I would even be able to do my day-to-day with motherhood, life coaching, being the chef, being the launderer, being the maid. You moms get it. There's a lot. There's a lot of hats that we wear and probably The biggest one I wear, the most important one I wear, of course, is motherhood. My motherhood is actually special needs motherhood. Both of my boys, so I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. They are both boys and they are both on the autism spectrum. And it is challenging. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to... Sugarcoat it, and maybe that's something that you need to know about me. Is I'm gonna say it how it is, you know. I'm going to, of course, put a positive spin, optimism into there. However, disclaimer you are gonna hear a lot about special needs parenting, you're gonna hear a lot about my boys, you're gonna hear a lot about my life. And how those challenges, of course, makes me a better person, but I feel like it's made me an incredible life coach. Special needs parenting led me to life coaching. But like I said, my biggest role, the hat I wear that is the heaviest, the hardest, but is also so wonderful is special needs parenting. We've been in what I call autism land and we've been here for about six years. We're going on almost seven years. We got incredibly lucky and for both of our boys, we caught autism early. Like We had the diagnosis in the bag before their second birthday. Like I said, it's been a journey. And in this episode, I want to talk about that. That's such a huge part of what's made me, me and shaped me into a mom, a wife, and now a life coach. And it forced me to take a long, hard look At myself, my life, my choices, my patterns, because for the most part, guys, life has been pretty smooth sailing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, hello, my name is Taylor. I have ADHD. And so school was always very turbulent and probably the most turbulent it ever was, was between the ages of 17 to 21, So, of course, school was such a huge trial, and I thought for sure that that would be my trial. Like, oh, school's so hard. Getting a degree is going to be so hard. But little did I know what was coming. Me and Marshall, we actually went to high school together and middle school together. We've known each other since we were 12, And we had very similar groups of friends. I don't know how it worked in your high school, but here at Dixie High, class of 2007, we all were pretty good friends. Like, of course, you have those clicks, but I feel like the clicks were larger and had bigger ways to overlap. I don't know if I'm making any sense. If any of my class of 2007 is out there, you get what I'm saying. Like we were a very special, tight knit group. And so Marshall was a good friend and we had similar friends and we would hang out regularly. He was always the guy who had a steady girlfriend and I always thought he was cute. Like, hello, you know, when someone's cute but he was always taken. And so we developed a friendship in high school, which made dating so simple. We didn't have to do the whole get to know you thing. We didn't have to do the whole let's build trust thing, you know, in some ways, of course, but really we had a solid foundation of friendship. It was just easy. That's the only way I can explain it was, it was by far the easiest relationship I had ever had. And it was wonderful. And like I said, we got married in 2013. I was 25, he was 24, and I was feeling so (laughs) behind. (laughs) I'm sure it's not totally uncommon in Utah to feel like an old maid when you're 25 years old and everybody else around you is on their third kid and are in their big homes and their careers and their jobs. And so we had talked a lot about immediately starting our family and that's what we did. And I am so grateful that I was able to get pregnant so quickly. I know there are many of you out there where that has not been your story and that that has been your greatest trial. And pregnancy was relatively simple for the most part. Of course, you have the first trimester nausea, but it was great. I enjoyed pregnancy. And when Desmond got here, he was actually due on Christmas Day. And I spent all of December, guys, trying to get this stubborn kid here. And Desmond decided to show up on the 21st of December. And he was beautiful, so beautiful. He was calm. He was looking around the room, trying to see this new world he was in, and everything went great. No complications, just a normal first mama delivery. I mean, it took two hours, but that's not totally out of the normal. And we went on, right? You get to the first month well check, second, third, next thing you know, you're at the 12 month well check, and you've got a one-year-old that year just zipped by. And of course, now looking back that I've got some hindsight, there are definite things that I can see now that were going on, but when it's your first, You don't know, you go on the internet and the internet tells you some things, but then also you have people saying, don't look at the internet because that'll just scare you silly. So we're just going with what our pediatrician is telling us. So from well check to well check, Desmond was within the normal range when it came to development, when it came to height and weight and percentiles he was within normal range. When it came to development, he was always a bit behind, but we were told that it was still within normal limits. Like that's still relatively normal. Boys tend to be a little bit behind anyways. And so we just went from well check to well check. And shortly after his first birthday, that our sweet little boy had a massive regression and regression became a word that was now prominent in my vocabulary. When you've got a little kiddo and something's wrong, something's off. My kid doesn't act like my nieces and nephews that he's close in age with. My son doesn't act like the kids he goes to nursery and primary with at church. Of course, we're monitoring all of this. And some of the things that we're seeing, first of all, is his capacity for new places. It used to be we could take this kid anywhere and anybody could babysit him. Then all of a sudden, no more. If we went anywhere outside of our house, it was a nightmare. Screaming, biting, hitting himself, hitting others, crying, so much crying. He had never really had a ton of language, like just a lot of babbling. But he did used to say, mama and dada. No more of that. It was like we were back to the newborn stage where you're just trying everything. You are trying everything to be able to quiet your child, to be able to calm your child. Nothing but being home and isolation would work. And that was probably one of the weirder symptoms we were seeing was the desire to isolate. He didn't want to be touched by us. He didn't want to play with us anymore. He just wanted to be in a corner, either the corner in the kitchen or a corner in his room by himself lining up toys. That was also strange, but to be fair, the lining up of the toys or even The strange way he would play with toys wasn't outside of his normal, really. Trying to get him to play with regular toys, trying to do any kind of imaginary play, non-existent. All that kid wanted to do was line things up. Lining up his snacks, lining up his food, lining up his toys, and you couldn't touch the lines, That would drive him bonkers. Another one that was interesting that I felt needed to be brought up to the pediatrician, like, yeah, of course, all of these things need to be brought up to your pediatrician. But the one that I found the very strangest was that my child is now almost 15 months and he has never responded to his name. He's never turned around to look to see who's saying his name. But the worst part of it is that he was starting to sensory seek, which with kids with autism, it can sometimes be dangerous. They tend to climb on top of things that they're not supposed to climb on. They tend to grab at things they're not supposed to grab at. And Desmond was starting to do that. He was starting to do some more adventurous, thrill-seeking behaviors. And I would say, Des, Des, don't do that. Don't you climb on that table. Don't you touch those scissors. And I would be on the couch. I would tell myself, okay, I'm going to say this three times, but then I'm going to have to get up off the couch and run over to physically stop him because he won't physically stop just by me telling him to. That was the one concern that I did bring up with our pediatrician at our 15 month well check. Because in my brain, I'm like, I'm not going to bring up this isolation stuff. I'm not going to bring up this lining up stuff. Like it could just be a phase, but everything that I read on the internet was the responding to your name and responding to things like, no, start happening at like seven months, guys, seven months old. So he was incredibly behind in that area. I had told myself, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be brave. I'm going to bring it up to my pediatrician, even though I don't know or really want to know what's wrong, right? It's that heavy, heavy state of denial where you bring it up, in the hopes that, oh, that's totally normal, that's within normal limits, he's good. I waited until the very end. I just couldn't get the words out. And it was when he said, okay, mom, is there anything else? All right, so I do have one concern. So when, when do children start responding to their name? I have never felt that kind of energy shift in a room. It was tangible, you guys. And he looks at me and he goes, what do you mean? And so I showed him. I, you know, went across the room. He was playing with his little toy. And I tried calling his name for a solid minute. No reaction. He's just still playing with his little car, doing his thing. So then Dr. Merkley starts asking the real questions. How does he do socially? Is there any kind of things that he used to do before that he doesn't do anymore? What is his play like? Is there anything odd about his play? Is there any kind of repetitive behaviors? Like does he flap his arms? Does he rock back and forth? Does he like to twirl? Desmond was actually repetitively biting his knuckles, which we then learned was stimming. And so I brought that up, showed the doctor all of that, and that we were working on it, that we weren't sure really what it was, but every time he would go to lift up his arms, I would just be there, right? Because you don't want your kid biting their knuckles. He asks all the right questions, all the ones you're supposed to ask. And we get to the very end and he says, okay, Taylor, there is absolute cause for concern. All of the things that he's doing, he should not be doing. That's not regular, typical 15 month old behavior. What we're going to do is we're going to run a lot of scary tests Because what we've got to do is we've got to figure out if this is something really serious or if what Desmond's trying to tell us is that he has autism. And you guys, that's when the tunnel vision, right? The, you can hear the little ringing, things get fuzzy. You're not super paying attention. And all I heard was autism. I'm trying to keep my composure. I'm trying to not lose it in front of our doctor. But immediately I call my husband bawling. Bawling, bawling. That something is not right with our boy. That they need to rule out all of the serious stuff. But if at the end of all the testing... If everything checks out just fine, they will refer us to a BCBA and they will refer us out to get a diagnosis for autism. And that was the first time I really saw Marshall break down. He had cried a lot at his uncle's funeral right before we had gotten married. But this was totally different. It was so much of the unknown, but also the very beginning of grieving the life that we thought we were creating. The baseball games, the vacations, the teaching your child how to throw, teaching your child all of those fun American dream things, that was the very beginning, only the beginning of the journey that we were going to be on. It took us about five months to rule out cancer, to rule out any kind of genetic issues, to rule out hearing, to rule out his sight, to rule out any kind of neurological deficit or genetic deficit that could be showing us signs of autism, but it's actually something else. And every time it was, it's looking great. His scans look good. Oh, it's looking great. He's hearing just fine. I think where a lot of my shame started was there because every time It wasn't brain cancer or it wasn't that he was deaf or it wasn't some kind of genetic abnormality. I would just be so incredibly disappointed, you guys. Like, What mother is disappointed that her child isn't deaf and praying, praying that our life will be American Sign Language, right? That was the very beginning of those really, really dark thoughts. And with every positive outcome, we were inching closer and closer and closer to an autism diagnosis. And Desmond was regressing hard. That five-month period to getting to that diagnosis, he was a completely different kid. He was a shell of himself. Hardly recognizable personality gone desire to connect gone desire to eat gone desire to play gone he was just this shell of a one-year-old and it was it was terrible guys really really dark time for sure. It was in August of 2016 that me and my mom, thank you mom for being there. My mom, Marshall was working, so my mom came with me because I was so nervous seeing the autism specialist and we asked all of our questions. He asked us a bunch of questions and then he did a lot of observing. Desmond was anxious. He was crying, running for the door. We couldn't get him to play with anything we couldn't get him to calm down. It was just this suffering child. And in my mind, I'm like, there's no way we're going to have to come back another day. He's really, really having a hard time. He's not going to be able to get any kind of diagnosis, anything like that. Little did I know that that's what he sees regularly with severely autistic one-year-olds almost two-year-olds at this time. He had done all of his observing, asked all of his questions. The last question we have was, all right, what do you think? And the first thing that he said was, I think that we have been in this room for an hour and a half and Desmond has not looked at you once and you're his mom. It's one thing to not look at the doctor. Maybe it's one thing to not look at grandma, but to not look at mom once. Or to not need mom to make things better. To not need mom to console. He didn't want to be touched. He didn't want to be consoled. He didn't want anyone. He just wanted to be left alone to figure out how to calm down by himself. I will never forget what he told us. He said, I can definitively tell you that Desmond has autism, but what you need to know is that this is not Asperger's. This is not high-functioning autism. What I'm telling you is that your child is severely autistic, that he is on the other end of the spectrum and will need constant care to be able to function in the world around him. It was then, okay, what do we do? And so a lot of it was starting ABA therapy, having strangers come into my home and try to get my boy to connect, try to get my boy to play, try to get my boy to even just tolerate being in a room with one other person. It was very, we started very, very small. I tell you what, ABA therapy is the real deal. Here is a free plug. If any of this, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm in the Southern Utah area, this sounds like my kid. Autism therapy services, Google it, autism therapy services. They have been the miracle workers in our life. Every inch of success that my boys have had to this date is because of them, because of their patience. because of their professionalism, because of their care. We just could not do autism land without them. And that was the next two years almost. And then we had Calvin, same, same situation, pregnancy wise, totally normal. And I actually went one step further and I had it in my brain that my makeup and my deodorant and my lotion that the chemicals in all of those things created Desmond's autism. I had read it somewhere. I had read it in a lot of different places. Of course, they're all blogs, guys. Of course, they're all blogs. I went completely chemical-free as much as I could. I didn't even take any ibuprofen. I didn't take any Tylenol. I just grin and bared it. I took my prenatal And for nine months, everyone was like, Taylor, you look tired. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I am tired. I wish I could put some concealer on, but I'm trying to be the mother of the year and make it so that my next boy doesn't have autism, right? Because we have all of this knowledge now. But what actually ended up happening with Calvin was the worst kind of deja vu you can imagine. It was for almost two years, just this dark cloud over our home, over our lives, because now we had all of this knowledge. We had all of these studies, we had read, we had researched, and we were going to watch this boy like a hawk, worse than a hawk. He was always under the magnifying glass, every, every milestone, every look, every giggle, everything I mentally documented and at every well check he was behind at 13 weeks. He still hadn't smiled at 13 weeks. He still hadn't looked at us. At 13 weeks, the only way we could get him to laugh was by physically tickling him. And that's how it was for Des. It was like watching Desmond grow up again, and it was terrible because in a lot of ways, the autism manifested differently. I mean, for Des, it, was, it seemed more like a light switch where he just regressed, but I think it was because we didn't know, we didn't have Des under that kind of magnifying glass like we did for Calvin, but for Calvin, it was slow. Every well check, he was a month or two behind, and he wasn't like the other one-year-olds or nine-month-olds, seven-month-olds. He was always just a little bit behind, and he was very anxious in social situations. He was very, very sensitive to noise. It got to be at his 15-month well check, again, brought up the concerns we were seeing, and that is when our pediatrician referred us to a geneticist, Everything that came back for us was inconclusive. There was no markers, no mutations that really showed that our boys should have autism. But the one thing that they did tell us is that because we don't have these markers, because we aren't seeing any real reason to explain why your boys are the way that they are. What we can tell you is that if you continue to have children, those children will have autism. Whether they are boys, whether they are girls, doesn't matter. If you continue to have children, those children will have special needs. And yeah, that was a dagger to the heart for sure. But what was interesting with Calvin's diagnosis was, and this is my, so, Let's squirrel here for a second. So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a huge part of my life. My faith in Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father has sustained us through all of this. And for me, the biggest miracle of all, the biggest answer to prayer, was the day that we got Calvin's diagnosis, I didn't have a psychotic break. (laughs) And I snicker at that, guys, but I'm being a little bit serious. Like Things were really, really hard. I was not doing well mentally and physically, to be fair as well. Not sleeping super well. I was definitely on track for some kind of mental break. I thought for sure, for sure, if, if I had another child with autism, that would break me. And the miracle of it all is that it didn't. I felt okay. I'm not going to tell you that, oh, I felt all of this peace and all of this comfort. It wasn't that. It was a sense of, you've done this before you know the players, you know the place, you know the ins and outs of ABA therapy. It is not going to be strangers coming into your home. It is going to be angels. I tell you guys, any of you out there who are working with children with special needs, you are angels to the parents and the family members of those children. I felt more confident. I felt like, okay, we can take this on. We can do this. Ain't nothing going to break in my stride. It was just this, this feeling of fullness, this feeling of empowerment, this feeling of we've done this before. We can do this again. And guys, that's what we've done. That is what we've done so far. The beautiful thing of it all is that really all of that darkness, all of just the anxiety, depression, grief that I had to go through to be able to find some semblance of acceptance, I started to learn that... The things that I was coaching. So at the time, from when Desmond was born to having Calvin, I was working at a residential treatment center for troubled, struggling teenage girls. We were vigorously trained on anxiety, depression, skills to be able to combat those kind of things so that we could redirect our students to learning these skills, these coping skills, these strategies to be able to help yourself regulate, to help yourself feel better faster. We were specifically trained on dialectical behavior therapy that I just grew to love and research and read and practice. All of the autism in my life forced me to to put into practice everything that I had learned at work, whether it was dialectical behavior therapy, different kinds of coping skills, all of that stuff, guys, I was forced. It was either sink or swim, right? It was either drown or start to doggy paddle, start to swim in the darkness, in the abyss of everything that felt like was crumbling. And I came to find out, oh my gosh, this stuff works. I do feel a bit better. Did it change my circumstances? No. Did it change my reality? No. Was I able to effectively walk through my reality and survive my reality? Absolutely. And really. That work that I did is what led me to life coaching. I'm telling you, it works. If you are out there struggling with anxiety, depression, grief, any kind of emotional suffering, I am telling you the strategies, the skills, the things that I implemented worked. Is there autism in my life? Absolutely. My circumstances have not changed, but my capacity to be able to walk through my circumstances, not only surviving, but thriving, building a life coaching business from the ground up, building this podcast from the ground up, being able to communicate and talk with each of you every week. I've been able to do all of that in autism land. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) But what does make sense to me is that it works. And I'm passionate about it, guys. You can hear it in my voice. I'm so passionate about it. All of that mess, all of the hard, all the hard that is to come has made me into who I am today And I'm in a place where I want to help you. I want to support you. I want to teach you and coach you on the strategies and skills that saved me. And I know that it can be the same for you. Of course, here's my little plug because hashtag, I don't have sponsors yet. So I'll sponsor myself. www.tenaciousheartlifecoaching.com. Check me out. Go see my website. Go to my contact page. There you can make an appointment with me. You'll send me a little email. I'll get the email and you and me will go back and forth to be able to set up a time where we can meet and go over the areas in your life where you need more support. And what's amazing is that really you don't have anything to lose because all of my first sessions are free consultations. Always we talk, we meet, we have a little back and forth. You tell me the things that you're willing to share. And I tell you the ways that I can change your life, that these skills can change your life. And that's my plug, keeping it simple today. And that's really me, guys. Of course, there's going to be things along the way that you're going to be like, oh, I didn't know that about Taylor. That's interesting. But for the most part, that's the nitty gritty. That's what you're going to be getting every Monday, week to week. Thank you again so much for being here. Next episode is going to be about Tenacious Heart Life Coaching. How did it start? How is it going? How can you get on board? Which, of course, I would love to be able to see you and meet you and really interact with you. That would be amazing. So, until then, guys, go out there with tenacity, find your tenacious heart, and create the life that you've always wanted. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.